Greetings, everyone. You're listening to KYRS Medical Expo Can 88.1 and 92.3 FM. And this is Art Hour. I'm your host, Mike Malson. I'm your other host, Eric Woodard. Eric, who's our guest today? Well, I'm going to let him introduce himself here in a little bit, but it's Matthew Joseph Hughes, a.k.a. Automatic Shoes. I never realized until just now that that rhymes. And uh, also, he is the... Uh, lead singer, songwriter, uh, performer, guitar player for Atari Ferrari. Full disclosure, before we get any deeper into it, I am in a band with Matthew. Um, and also, he's a former student of mine, so we are very well connected. Uh, Matthew, welcome. Thank you for having me on. Of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, you're a musician, and you've been a musician for how long? Uh, I was... Uh just thinking about that today. I found my first notebook, so I think it's uh, since September 2006 is when I first started trying to be a musician. And <laughs> you would have been 17? Yeah, 17. Okay. Why did you start trying to be a musician? Um, I just, I don't know. I kept seeing like talent shows and people at my school, and uh, I was, was like, I think I could do that, and but I never really, I don't know, had the courage to ask for lessons or, I don't know, act out on it. I didn't know how to, to be that person, so I just decided to teach myself when I was 17, and uh, I don't know. I always like wanted to be a singer, and but I didn't know how to play anything. I didn't have anybody to play with. Um, so I just decided to teach myself. Now, when you say teach yourself, did you teach yourself on piano, on guitar? What'd you do? On guitar. I just, uh, looked up a, a chord chart. I actually had like a Led Zeppelin songbook, And so I, I looked at the chords and just taught myself a couple chords and started playing some Tom Petty and T-Rex songs. So Tom Petty and T-Rex were the, kind of the reasons you wanted to start? You wanted uh, to be them? Well, it was it was definitely Mark Bolan. Um, like, I felt like I didn't have anything worth singing about. Um, and when I saw Mark Bolan, he was kind of just, like, making stuff up. And I'm like, I think I can just make up some stuff. <laughs> like, uh, I don't know, Tom Petty has a lot of... Uh, heartbreak and relationships and those are kind of the singer songwriters that I was into originally and then to see Mark singing about cars and just random whatever I'm like I think maybe I should do that (laughs) well I was gonna say so I caught your show uh, at the nine recently and I got got to meet your dad and so one of the questions I asked him was, well, when did uh, you know Matt had this had a musical talent and, uh, you know, like at what age? And he was saying you were way back like five or seven years old and experimenting with different instruments and, and doing stuff like that. Yeah, I was always messing around, but I never took it seriously. I didn't, I didn't think I was ever going to do it like I don't know. There's a lot of aspects about my life that I'm like, I don't, I don't know if I'll ever get there. Maybe one day. Um, but then I don't know, eventually I think everyone hopefully comes to that realization. Like I got to act on this now. Otherwise 
it's never going to happen. Like you kind of have to create your own reality. Yeah. Now you have uh, an amazing voice, and thanks. Uh, you know, and some singers, you know, you you can just tell they have great sense of pitch, and you know, can hit notes right on without kind of like searching. So when did you get feedback that you you know like, dude, you can you can sing? I think. <laughs> As long as I can remember, um, I was like two or three years old in a store with my aunt and a pretty woman came on the radio and I was like, hey, a Annie, listen to this. And I just started singing like Roy Orbison and like everyone in the store was like, oh my God. <laughs> um, so yeah, when I, when that happened, I was like, oh, that made me feel good. Like maybe I'll just do that as much as I can and because otherwise I'm a pretty quiet guy and I don't really get a lot of attention like just sitting there being quiet so yeah you know that's a kind of a funny story so one of the guests that we interviewed a long time ago I think even before Eric when I was just wondering if we were going to do this show art hour but his name is Rick Jondro and he's a Native American painter who is just an amazing painter now um and asked him the same question. And I was kind of like, you know, I just started painting pictures, but it wasn't until somebody came up and he said, hey, how much does that cost? And mm -hmm. he thought, oh, I think I might just felt good. And yeah. the fact that your art's appreciated then kind of decided to go into that full time. Yeah, it's kind of nice. I don't know. Some people get into it like just because they're seeking that feeling. It's nice to discover those things by accident. Like you're just doing your thing and then that's kind of a secondary outcome of whatever you're doing. Mm -hmm. So when you turned 17, you said that's when you decided to get serious. Yeah, I'm like, I'm going to make this happen. What does that mean? What did getting serious mean? <laughs> that means like uh, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to like practice this guitar every day. Like I've had this guitar since I was, I don't know, seven or eight and I would come to it every couple weeks and try and figure out one little melody and be like oh that's good enough and then that's it like I never tried to write anything because I didn't think I had anything to say and so I was waiting for something to happen to me like maybe one day I'll have something to say maybe like back then I was like maybe I'll have a girlfriend and I'll have something to say about that and then, <laughs> and then I realized that was never going to happen <laughs> <laughs> so what so when you say you started doing it what was what did you perceive as a 17 year old your goal was going to be um I don't know like mm -hmm. I always wanted to be a rock star um but I didn't know how that was ever going to happen like without anything to say but it's interesting that you say that so even with you don't have anything to say and then you did have things to say but it took you a long time to actually perform in public yeah it right? took me like 10 years of life so i know so that's weird how did you i mean how did you there's a paradox there you wanted to be a rock star but you didn't want to perform so what what about being a rock star appealed to you if it wasn't the performing part um i like i like rock stars with something to say so like i feel like i was doing a lot of practice on how to be a rock star, waiting till I had something to say. And when did like, you know you had something to say? Um, shoot, last year? No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it took a while. Like, because 
first, like, I'm writing songs about just, like, made-up stuff, cool combinations of words, like T-Rex would put together. Um, and then I started getting into relationships, and I'm, I can write stuff about this. Uh, maybe people can relate to that. Um, I Like, am I a personal singer-songwriter, like Joni Mitchell kind of mm-hmm. thing? Um, and then I was like, I don't know if that's my kind of thing. Like, that's where Taylor Swift kind mm-hmm. of exists in that realm of, like, you have a relationship, you break up with that person, you write songs about it, and and send it out into the world. And I'm not sure I want to be that songwriter either. Um, so once I kind of resolved all my relationship problems and stopped writing all those breakup songs, um, I started looking out at the world and maybe I have something to say about this. And so your songs that you have written at this point and recorded, I mean, what is it that you're observing about the world now that you're uh, approaching 30, I'm guessing? Yeah, yeah. 30. Um, so you're the same age as my kids as well. It'd be interesting to know your take on w- what you're observing that you feel like you need to write about now. Um, I, there's a lot going on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it's it's kind of a hard line to walk though because everyone's so divided about everything that if you come out like like the show the other night where uh, the headliner was very clear about where she stood before the music even started. Um, I like to give people a chance to connect to the music first before you kind of inject whatever you're trying to say. Sneak attack on the yeah, message. Yeah, that's, right? that's what music is for. It's kind of softening the blow of whatever message you're trying to deliver. What do you think is the first song that you wrote that you felt did that, that had something to say beyond relationships, something to say maybe about the world because you wanted to say something about the world? Um... The one with the greatest impact, I think, was Born in the Wrong Time. And everyone loves that when we play it, just because it's like... So you don't think you had a song... Because you just wrote that song recently. Yeah. You don't think you had a song before that? No, because I wasn't playing them for people. Oh, okay. So you had a sense of audience at that point. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, I mean, I've had songs that people have connected to, um, like my friend Bill... Um, he would tell me that there's songs that that touch something within him that kind of made that connection. But I wasn't performing songs at that time, so I never really got that sense of satisfaction that we get from playing Born in the Wrong Time for people. Would you be willing to play it for us right now? For uh, Let me play you the one that, that, that Bill... Um, Great. Yeah, we could talk a little bit about Bill after that, too. Yeah. So this is, so t- again, what, what did Bill have to do with this song? Uh, he, let's see, he spent like uh, 67 years in the closet. And uh, I don't know, he just connected to the words of this song. And this was the first one that I uh, wrote kind of stepping outside of the the T-Rex genre. I was like, I want to try something a little more, maybe George Harrison, where I can harmonize with myself. 
and uh, I don't know, just see what I can do. I'm not sure if I remember all the words, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I'll try it anyway. It's called After All. chances before the fall Cause who knows when it's time And you've got to change your mind Make your peace before the door before I learned how to yeah. write a bridge. <laughs> so did you write that song for him, or you wrote that song and he connected with it? Uh, I wrote that song before I met him, and uh, I met him in a, a training class for a really dumb call center job. Um, and I only got that job because I was saving up to move across the state to be with my boyfriend. And I was very like outspoken about why I had this job, and I'm only saving money just so I can move over there to be with him. And Bill's like closeted. Mm. He was my trainer, and uh, he just saw that as an opportunity to to come out of the closet. And one of the things he said in training was as a like an introductory. Thing. He's like, tell the room one thing that you are probably better at than the rest of the room. And I said, I'm probably a better singer. <laughs> and Bill was a singer himself. And he's like, oh, really? <laughs> so he would come over and like sing by my desk. And he's like, can you do better than that? <laughs> and so I just I sent him a recording that I made of that song. And he came back the next day and he was like, 
oh my God, like <laughs> you are a better singer. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> and I mean, judging by the lyrics, I mean, it must have really resonated with him. Yeah, he was like, Jesus. And so <laughs> he was kind of my guy. Like um, every time I would write something, I would send him a, a demo of it and he would be like, it's beautiful, Matthew. It's the best thing I've heard you. Like mm-hmm. he was that person. Like, like I could just bounce ideas off of. Um, but yeah, I lost him in April of this year. So it's been kind of a rough couple months. Um, but at least I have the band now. Like, that's kind of been my, the last three years when I come up with a new idea, I'll send it to Rob or send it to you or send it to Henry now, Scott. So that's an interesting thing. And both of you guys could probably answer this. So when you have an idea or the, you know, uh, maybe you're somebody in the band, but it, maybe your song has an idea. How do you uh, work it out and collaborate uh, with Atari Ferrari, with the group? Um, it kind of depends on, well, when we first started, it was it was all these songs that I had written already or songs that Eric had written already. And we're like, let's just try this. And they were pretty much arranged how they were going to be. Um, and then I started writing like half songs or three-quarter songs and be like, okay, you guys come up with a bridge or come up with something that'll make this sound good. Um, I like to to leave it open to collaboration now um, just because I don't want to be that uh, controlling (laughs) person. (laughs) But at the end result, you you come up with what you feel expresses kind of what what you're kind of feeling or the emotion of the song in in the end result or does it actually come out better i mean in terms of like it becomes synergistic i yeah it all come out this well unless we had that process yeah i try not to have the end result in mind anymore because i know it will be different like i cannot predict what rob's going to do with this i cannot predict how eric mm. is going to want to play on it like if i tell Eric play on it like this I can tell by the look on his face that he's not into it (laughs) (laughs) sometimes never knew that about Eric (laughs) (laughs) no that's that's really good well or sometimes you'll say play it like this and they think they're doing what you asked them to do and they do something different but there's a whole bunch of happy accidents I Mm -hmm. mean um, I mean even talk about how long it took us to get um, El Camino down yeah Mm. um that was like almost one of the first songs after the we had like my songs figured out that you brought up and you're like I want to try this and we would try it and like uh, I would give up and then we'd try it again a couple months later and like we never made progress on the song for but we were working on it yeah now that's that's an interesting process, too. Remember when we uh, interviewed Brooke about that one poem that just she was mm-hmm. not going to give up on after months and months of getting feedback from different people, but mm-hmm. sometimes you got to just grind through that. Um, your, the band sound, now just from somebody that uh, really likes the sound, it's capable of going in a few different directions in terms of crossing over a little bit. We, you, know, you even talked a little bit about that. I mean, you yeah. almost could go country and just be unbelievable in that area as well. Yeah, well, I grew up on country. That was my, before I heard uh, 
I think it was uh, Ozzy Osbourne's Mama, I'm Coming Home that <laughs> made me think, <laughs> oh, maybe I could like classic rock too. <laughs> but before that, it was like all Shania Twain and that kind of... Uh, with Shania, actually, I've been listening to a lot more recently. That was really important stuff because she was 100% country, and then she was kind of that first person to do that crossover to, like, pop, and that was a big deal on CMT. Like, Shania Twain was, I don't know, people were up in arms over it, like, thought she was selling out to go pop, but now Taylor Swift gets all the credit for that, so... Yeah, I want to ask you about automatic shoes because you did that for a long time, right? Yeah, I mean, you—that's kind of what you started at at seventeen, right? Yeah, I've been recording like pretty much since I taught myself how to play. I've been putting together albums, even though the first couple I wouldn't share with anyone now. <laughs> now, when you say albums, uh, you would have a song collection, and would you you would release it as an album? Yeah, and you release it on SoundCloud. Uh, MySpace. Wow. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And then, um, so you're released, and you were pretty prolific. You came out, I mean, how how long would it take you between albums? Um, let's see, I did um, two in 2006, and I did two in 2007, I think. And then I did one in 2008, and then... I think it took me three years to do another one. I don't know what I was doing. I think I was getting into my first relationships and kind of messing around with that instead of music as much. Um, but I think I have like 14 or so albums Jeez. now. Wow. And what? so what was the reception? How did that go from 2006, first album comes out, to like when you started Atari Ferrari? What was that, three and a half years ago or so? Yeah. So... Uh, I mean, what was what was that like releasing music on MySpace and then other places? I mean, did it, I don't know, I, uh, just kind of the distribution part of it is kind of what I'm interested in. Yeah, the first two were pretty much only for family and friends because I couldn't even be in the same room if somebody was listening to it. Like, <laughs> I, I don't know how I got over that. Uh, it was just like, I want to make music, but I can't even listen to it, so... Here you go, and then I would like run and then away. Run. <laughs> <laughs> it was like Jimmy Stewart, you know. He says, "I, I never watched any of my movies." Yeah, yeah. I hated it. Hated, yeah. hated it. I still hate it. Listening to my own stuff. Yeah, yeah. I do. Oh, nice. So, I mean, but, you started to build a fan base, though, right? Yeah, uh, it was probably by the third or fourth album. Um, it really connected with the because I was still doing some Mark Bolan covers on albums, and. Uh, it kind of picked up with the Mark Bolan fan base in the UK and and some in America, like New York and California. Um, there's little hot spots of T-Rex fans. And they would send me a check in the mail and then I'd send them a CD. And I sold a lot of CDs back then. And probably around 2013 is when I noticed that like nobody buys CDs mm. anymore. Like... I'm lucky if I sell 10 on an album release. Um, but the rest is all streaming now. Uh, so, and, you know, and that, you know, is a whole other ballgame about making money. You know, you almost have to do 
Yeah. It's it's crazy how like I was lucky to get uh maybe two interactions per week back then with people that were really into my music. Um, but I sold a lot of CDs and now like my phone goes off every couple hours with some comment, like I've been listening to you for this long, whatever. Um, so much feedback that it's like, it's hard to not have it affect you. Like Mm. you kind of have to keep your head on your shoulders. Mm. Um, but that contrasted with people who actually buy the music or support you as an artist is just like gone. So I want to go back to the Mark Bolin discussion though, because you had a very interesting uh, kind of side movement in your life relating to Mark Bolin. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, um, back in the MySpace days, I tracked down his uh, widow, pretty much Gloria Jones, and. Uh, I found her her real MySpace profile. I, I was really good at stalking back then. <laughs> and I just sent her a message. I was like, I'm a huge fan. And if you need anything, you know, let me know. And she messaged me back, like, almost right away. She's like, I've been waiting for somebody like you to help me navigate this because she didn't know anything about the Internet and, and just needed help kind of uh, establishing her presence on there. And... Um, I don't know. There was a lot of uh, kind of unrest in the Mark Bolin community. Um, There was some kind of leftover uh, racial bias and some fans that that weren't fans of her contributions to T-Rex albums. And so I kind of had to establish that she was a very... Um, well-respected Motown producer and writer and like she produced for the Commodores and Marvin Gaye and Hmm. like she had nothing of that of her reputation online so I had to do a lot of research and finding her names and albums and uh, helping get her albums uh, remastered and re-released like the Share My Love album Um, so it was a lot of work actually for an 18 or 19 year old kid to be doing. <laughs> um, but I learned a lot about And you moved down there, right? Uh, no, she flew me down to to Los Angeles once. Oh, okay. Um, and I met Lionel Richie and the Supremes and sat at a table with the Temptations and the Velvelettes and stood in an elevator uncomfortably with Smokey Robinson. (laughs) He stood a little bit too close to me. (laughs) But I guess I'm fine with that. (laughs) So how did that, how did that resolve itself? Um, I don't know. She, uh, started building this, uh, school of music in Africa, uh, the Mark Boland school of music. And I kind of got, away from the music and like involved in my relationships and we kind of fell out of contact for a little bit. Um, but I met Mark's son in that time and we recently reconnected at that um, tribute show in New York um, where I got to play with Clem Burke of Blondie and Dennis Dunaway of the Alice Cooper group and Suzanne Vega and 
just too many people for me to I was like writing notes in my phone while it was happening so I wouldn't forget who I was meeting and these interactions with people uh, wow I uh, I didn't know all of this background <laughs> yeah and, and, and with Matt holy cow and he got uh, the talisman uh, he got uh, he got a, he got a pair of boots a pair of Mark's boots yeah that don't fit they, <laughs> they fit after about like six minutes of trying to get them on. Yeah. <laughs> that is, that's crazy. So you uh, mentioned that you, you know, kind of quit like your day job. Yes. A, a few a few months ago, or um, is this a, a signal that you're really now, you know, t- taking the the level of commitment up another notch in terms of your creative uh, goals and things like that? Yeah, I would say so. Um, almost more it's almost like a a spiritual thing that I've been doing like I just can't be in an environment anymore where I have to put on a face or you know put on that that customer interaction face um I've been reading a lot about uh gestalt therapy recently which is where you try and actualize like who you are like I am me you are you and if we meet that is beautiful and if not like it can't be helped and so I'm just trying to be as authentically myself as possible and if that means I rub people the wrong way or can't get a job interview (laughs) (laughs) then that's how it's gonna be Um, knowing you though you've always kind of been that way though haven't you Yes. I mean, you've always kind of been, hey, I am who I am. Yeah, uh, but I, at the same time, I've, I was kind of like good at playing the game too. Like you kind of, this is my working at Target face. <laughs> like I won't react to you, but eventually, like that kind of thing gets. I mean, it gets under your skin, and you're like, who am I? Like, how can I just, if I can change like that, like. Who am I actually? Like, what is my real personality? So you're saying the break is a lot more about finding your authentic self than it is about necessarily devoting yourself 100% to music at this point. Yeah. I mean, those might like, go together, but the goal was more the first one. Yeah. Okay. And I, I, So I have a question for you, too, because, I, I mean, I, I get to ask you questions that I honestly don't know the answer to. <laughs> so uh, your first performance live was at karaoke at Nine Barn Bistro, right? Yeah. Because you basically were too timid to perform in front of an audience until, what would that have been, like 2015, 16? I think 2014. 2014, okay. So you got a lot of good feedback there, and then you hadn't done a lot of performance still. You do karaoke, and then we, yeah. uh, where we got back together was um, at the Bowie Tribute, and that yeah. was what year? 2016. 2016, Okay. And then you're starting to overcome your stage fright. And now, I don't, I don't know if they want to call it stage fright. You just didn't want to perform. It was uh, stage fright. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and then, so now, I mean, I've t- asked you the question where I've said, uh, do you get uh, that anymore? And you said no, right? You just don't feel that anymore. You don't yeah, get no. stage fright. Uh, and now that you've played out-of-town gigs, uh, I mean, where do you see? So, it's, I mean, just you said it was 20. 14 was the first time you performed at nine? Yeah. So like, in five years. Oh, go ahead. They actually, um, 
It was Ryan who runs the sound for karaoke at nine. He convinced Kitty to bring open mic nights to nine just because he was trying to get me to play on stage for the first time. And I took a couple open mics where I just watched other people. And uh, Kent Euland of The Holy mm-hmm. Broke, he would play. And Scotty uh, Fielder, um, he's in... Uh, he's in Deer. Yeah, and, uh, and yeah. Pine Lake. Mm-hmm. He was the bartender there at the time, and he would go and, and play the open mics too. And I was like, oh, okay, I'll do it. And I, it was just like tunnel vision. Mm-hmm. Like I remember I played Lady Gaga's applause on acoustic and just people exploded. And I was like, why have I been waiting? <laughs> <laughs> I was just like mad at myself. Why did I wait so long? Why did I waste so much time? This so it's was, like it went away almost immediately. Yeah. Then I was like, I can't wait to get, I would go every Wednesday for almost a year just playing open mics. You know, there's probably, you know, several tens, maybe even hundreds of people in Spokane, kids in high school or just out of that have that same thing, you know, wondering if they should do open mic and all of that stuff. I mean, uh, I guess just what you said, uh, what what would you tell them in terms of going into the abyss, so to speak? If you have (laughs) any inkling that you should be doing something... I mean, besides, like, murdering people, you should probably do it. Like, just get it over with, rip off the Band-Aid. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, otherwise, like, you're either, like, building a path toward doing that or you're just building up more of a wall that's going to make it harder to do it in the future. Well, and you were fortunate, too, that you got a really good response the first time. I think a lot mm-hmm. of those people Mike's talking about are people who are thinking, what if they laugh at me or whatever, yeah, you know? Exactly. And that's the fear, yeah. but but you can overcome that, too. Yeah. Yeah, same conversation. Uh, Vanna O, Lindsay Johnson, was it was a teacher at Lewis and Clark, and we were just talking. And when she was a teacher, and that was the thing, she says, you know, just kind of learning how to play the guitar and saying, oh, I didn't know that. You should do open mic. Oh, I'm not good enough. I mean, that's exactly <laughs> what you said, but obviously she got over that as well. So that's that's pretty cool. So I, we kind of got off on that question. So you started performing, and then now you've played, you know, Missoula, Seattle, Portland. Did that did that add another layer of um, I don't know desire, another layer of fire, another layer of something that maybe didn't happen before you played on the road? Um, yeah, a little bit. Like I did that, those two shows in New York that just was crazy response. I actually stop for that. Talk about that show a little bit. Oh. That was such a, I mean, that was such an uh, iconic experience for you. Um, how did you get involved in it? The guy who put the, the, um, uh, concert together, Joe, I can't remember his name. Uh, and why was he putting the concert together? What was the occasion? It's, uh, it was the, 30 or no the 40th anniversary of Mark Bowen's death and his 70th birthday um so they're doing a big tribute concert they do it every on every major anniversary um and he just found my Mark covers on YouTube and he said he sent me a message he's like I've been listening to these like while I'm putting the schedules together and everything and just want to say if you're in the area, come on over and you can have a song. And 
and I'm like, I'm nowhere near New York. <laughs> There's no way. Like, that's always my first, like, instinctual response is, like, there's no way I can afford it, blah, blah, blah. And then, like, my mom and my boyfriend at the time gave me money to go, and the band. They're like, just buy a plane ticket, go over there, get it over with. And we, we got rid of all of his excuses. We yeah. Said, we said, well, you can take band money. You got to go, yeah. man. So, so you got That's there. Fair. Yeah, I got there in the. It was, uh, I don't, like, I was sharing food with Clem Burke, like, the drummer for Blondie, and, like, he was introducing me to his friends, and it was crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't know. I don't even know how to explain the feeling of, uh, like, all these bands that I've been into and the musicians that that helped them, um like Bowie's guitarist and Patti Smith's bassist, like the people that played with them and and made their voices what they are, were now playing with me. And I felt like they saw the same thing in me that they saw in the people that... So, yeah, on that, did they um, tell you any stories or uh, say something, you know, out of... uh an act of encouragement, but something that re- you still remember now that um, has changed you, even if it's in a small way, on maybe your direction or motivation or inspiration uh, with your music? Um, and like, I still remember Clem coming up to me after the first night, and he, like, slaps my shoulder, and he's like, best one of the night, good job. And then... Uh, when we when I was leaving the second show, he's like, "When do I get to see you again?" Like that's what sticks out in my mind is Clemberg's asking me when he gets to see me again. Uh, I was like, like yeah. Sudden, "Yeah, I was like, yeah. that's crazy." Um, and I think I I learned my lesson of um, my goal was to not freak out in the in the green room. <laughs> that's a good to, goal. To to not rush anybody. To just let them come to me mm-hmm. if if that was meant to happen, mm-hmm. and everything that I wanted to happen just kind of came to me without me having to to like be in anybody's face. Um, so I think I'm I'm good I'm good at that now. <laughs> it seems like you still haven't fully processed it in a way. Yeah, I I mean I try not to dwell on a lot of things because I think I can overanalyze sometimes. So, um, yeah. But it, it was, sounds like it was a purely 100% positive experience. Yeah. That's awesome. Okay, yeah. so I still, I mean, I'm sorry I keep asking this question and then <laughs> making you go off on these <laughs> tangents. But um, so now that you've done that, I mean, did that, did getting out of town, playing in front of different audiences, playing with a touring band, um, did that change anything for you? Yeah, I think it, it made makes me want to uh, get to England somehow because I know people would come out. Like now why do you been, say that? Why England? Uh, they've been waiting for 10 years. and I get From the Automatic Tuesdays. Yeah. You have a lot of fans over there. Oh, yeah. How did you get fans in England? I mean, what, I mean do you yeah, know it's, why? Yeah, it's it's the Mark Boland fan base. Oh, it's, gotcha. Uh, it's something about... Uh, they have a different... Uh, connection to music than Americans do 
like it's an essential part of their day. Um, like, I don't know, you could play it. I don't know, we've performed gigs that just like the audience isn't even half paying attention. Um, and other ones like, I don't know, it's like people understand. Everyone in England, I feel like they just understand where our music is coming from. Um, even Tom Petty, when he first started and and toured around the States a little bit, he didn't really get much of a reaction until he blew up in England and they toured over there. And then the United States kind of saw that he was a big deal. Mm -hmm. Oh, they're a big deal. We got to go to this show. Like you kind of have to be a big deal first before someone wants to come out of their house here. Mm -hmm. In England, they're like, Oh, I heard that this is good. Like, well, they have that pub culture too. Yeah, they're used to going to the their like, local water. Let's hole. go find what's good. Yeah, let's go yeah, make it good. Yeah. yeah. Well, and it is interesting as you mentioned that I didn't think about it, but we got such great reactions in all all the places we played that it. Then you come home and you play a gig like we have played recently, <laughs> and it just feels like why can't I don't know. It just feels weird that you do get that sometimes better reaction on the road than you do at home. Yeah, which was. Now, having that experience, um, that little uh, kind of a mini tour, is that something um, you, you see doing uh, a little bit more extensive, you know, rather than three or four stops, maybe a West Coast, you know, Rocky Mountain back kind of a tour, or um, is it more about creating and just recording? Because, I mean, some people like really like the road and others just hate it. Yeah, what did you um, think? I think Eric and I are down to go <laughs> like, <laughs> That's true. A, as long and as far as possible. Um, it kind of just depends on the other guys. <laughs> yeah, Yeah. well, I mean, weirdly enough, we still have a high schooler in our band, so yeah, he couldn't right. play one of our gigs because he had to go home to school. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. But that's, yeah, some, yeah. that's something you'd want to do a lot more of now that you've got the bug. Yeah, and and we have like... I don't. I didn't count the list, but we have a lot of uh, maybe like twenty-one songs that we could record if we wanted to. I mean, we need to record actually. Uh, so we need to have like an album's worth of stuff, or maybe even a double album. Who knows? Um, and and plan something out instead of uh, we kind of just. Now, Take you the guys, did you guys like say in the last tour? Did you, um, I'm always interested in how uh, a touring musician, you know, especially our local musicians that have been starting to do that. I mean, did you lose money by doing that? You know, by the time you got your gas money, you know, transportation, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, do you, is it something where you kind of need almost a sponsor to kind of get started on that or? Um, I would say we just about broke even between the the money we made from the uh, from the shows and then like selling merch there, um, but that doesn't account for like taking time away from work or anything. Right, yeah. So it we to be a touring band at our level, we're kind of paying to to be out there. Yeah. Um, but that's kind of the way it is in Spokane anyway. Mm -hmm. Like. We kind of have to use our time off work or, 
you know, we're kind of paying to play wherever. Yeah. So what, uh, what do you got coming up? I mean, in terms of anything uh, recent or I suppose as, li- as far as live performances go? Um, we have a house party mm-hmm. that you're not invited to. No, <laughs> <laughs> like a, a Christmas party. Um, I don't know if we're doing the knitting factory thing. They haven't gotten back to us, mm. which I'm not sad about. Mm. Um, and then we have, what's the hidden room in January? Are we doing that? What's the hidden room? The winery thing. Oh, oh, I, I don't know. Oh, we need to figure out who's the who's the business guy in this group. We kind of all handle it ad hoc a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's there's a constant uh, conflict between gigging and writing and recording because you know you're moving your equipment and when you record you want to get your stuff there. You want to get the mics on it. Mm-hmm. So we we had a uh, was it October that was so busy for us? Yeah, we did like five or six shows. We did five shows in eight days in three states. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, yeah. and so that that was fun and it was great and I thought we played well and all that yeah. stuff. But yeah, it's just when you don't have gigs, then you can do that kind of stuff. Like you mentioned twenty-one songs. That's something we can work on. You also go in the same cycle though, like um, you've got ideas for songs and then to go through the process you talked about earlier here in the show. I'm gonna take this to the band. You know, I've got some things uh, that you know, may be getting ready for another tour or another cycle of local performance. Because you do that, it's easy to get to a saturation point in Spokane. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because there's just, I mean, it's getting better, but there's not like a ton of local bands where you can see somebody different, you know, every week or every month. But uh, now that you kind of made this this life change in terms of, you know, Oh, I'm just, you know, I've got this time, you know, is that kind of, that also takes time, you know, some people it's months and then they're ready to go through that same cycle again. We're going to go and play and as much as we can and get this new stuff out. Yeah, I'm hoping we get more into the recording cycle of like uh, finishing up these songs and because I feel like right now I have a backlog of emotions that mm-hmm. I need to to release right. into the world like this year has been rough mm-hmm. <laughs> and I've written a lot of songs and, and that's kind of what music is for me is like I have this emotion I need to process it in words and music and and vent it out into the world as fast as possible Eric I'm wondering if we, where we are time was if we have time for maybe another I'd song. like to do one more song but I the what I'd be interested to hear on a song that you play is you I mean your songwriting has evolved a lot from automatic shoes to the current time. Yeah. What's a song that you've written recently that you think is just kind of different, maybe a step in a, a direction that you like that maybe you didn't I mean that you didn't foresee. Is there a song that you're that you think is kind of a, a, a new direction for you that you've written recently? Are you trying to get me to play Heartbreaker? <laughs> no, no, I'm not. I'm not. But I do. I mean, I notice. I mean, even like Middle of Nowhere, that's that was a different type of song. There are a lot of songs that you've written. So is there one for you that you felt like when it came out, you went, oh, that's kind of surprising even to you? Um, yeah, there's a couple. Uh, I was planning on playing, if anything, today, a couple of ones that maybe you haven't heard yet. Great. Yeah. yeah pick one. Do her. Um, let's see. I don't 
don't know if this is a new direction, but I think I like the words. So this is one I haven't heard? I don't I don't think so. Alright, cool. And I haven't played it for anyone but myself yet, so if I mess it up, that's why. This is community radio. Yeah. <laughs> We're fine. tell you all just how much you break my heart just when it seems like there's something good coming we give up before we start there's people telling me every day to give it up I don't know what I'd do if I ran out of love It's pretty hard to be heard these days If you ain't got the cash I always thought that the reason to play Was to make something last Still people telling me every day to keep it up I don't know what I'd do if I fell out This is going to come out sounding weird, but do you have people telling you to give it up? Yeah. Really? Who, yeah. Who tells you to give it up? Uh, 
just like you're never gonna make it like you need to get a real job like this isn't ever gonna pay for itself um yeah so well, you still hear that huh yeah okay. well i think the first artist cave person was told the same thing <laughs> yeah. you know i mean i think that's been forever artists you know i mean that's kind of a hero's journey i'm that's why you know erica always talk about how much how inspiring it is and how much respect we have for artists um to to make that commitment i don't to me it's amazing well and i think every every artist who succeeds does that at some point mm -hmm. and they usually probably don't um <laughs> they don't have a full-time day job and then do the gig on the side and then suddenly get famous they usually yeah. have to at some point yeah. say yeah. i gotta take that leap yep yeah. i guess Takes a, lot, it takes a lot of courage. Yeah, yeah. and there are people who take the leap and don't succeed. Right, but, but, you, but you, you know, you can't succeed without taking the leap. Exactly, you have to do it. I mean, exactly, but, um, and not and to be able to live with uh, no regrets. Yeah, you know, I always thought the person that had a lot of talent, that was a really, I mean, that's a double-edged sword because now you put yourself in the realm of I could have regrets if I don't take the leap. Mm -hmm. Well, that's pretty much all you want to do, though, right? I mean, that's what you do with your free time. Yeah. This is not something that you say, I want to make it my job. It's just, it's you yeah. can't you can't not do it, right? Yeah, can't stop, won't stop. So. <laughs> um, well, that was a great song. Uh, we actually have, uh, we're, we're running up against our time limit. We've, we've had our 55 minutes. So, yeah. So, thank you, Matthew, for coming in. I look forward to... Uh, seeing you again soon <laughs> yeah i hope so <laughs> recording some of those songs yeah, and uh, thanks for bringing your guitar it sounded great yeah. your room your voice sounded really good I in this know. room i was thinking now hope this comes out with this uh experiment we're doing in this room but at any rate um on that first that song your voice just filled this room it sounded so good i hope it yeah. it comes out in the recording as well yeah. as it, it sounded yep. here so thanks again matt yeah great thank you